Before we get into tonight's episode, I wanted to throw in a disclaimer about some of the terminology that will be used in the following story. These stories appeared in the late 1980s and early 1990s and were passed on much earlier than that. Some of the names of the landmarks are no longer the accepted terms and are even considered offensive to those they are referring to. We've evolved considerably since that time, and history, as you know, is rife with messiness and lack of understanding. On tonight's episode, we are going to explore two uniquely New Jersey stories. Both of these stories are very close to me, as I grew up in New Jersey, right after their zenith of popularity. While both of these stories are centered in this small but overpopulated state, they evoke a nostalgia of the pre-internet era that anyone of a certain age can recall, no matter where they grew up. This was a time when information was obtained not from the internet, but from the mouths of others, and rumors and reputations still managed to spread like wildfire without the aid of cell phones. One star of the story gave New Jerseyans a roadmap for adventures down the twisting, turning roads of local lore, urban legends, and eerie landmarks. The other star of the story was the world-famous water park where danger came with every twist and turn of the many rides that thrilled, terrified, and even injured its riders. But the weirdness and the danger of our story didn't deter people, but left them clamoring for more. This is Greetings from the Garden State, Action Park, and other weird tales of New Jersey lore. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. Before we could summon the internet with the tap of a phone, the world was a mysterious place. Infinite possibilities awaited us. The open road was primed for adventure, especially for the young and curious and even more so if you had access to a car and just got your driver's license. Back then, rumors and stories carried substantial weight. Credibility was easier to attain, since there was no instant means of verifying the fantastic tales of an older brother or sister. Much was taken as fact, or at least considered in the back of one's mind. A common taunt used by people today is picture or it didn't happen, meaning someone is not to be believed unless photographic evidence is provided. With almost everyone carrying an easy-to-use camera at all times, this isn't an absurd request. But before the rise of smartphones, a convincing story was often all that was needed. Common perceptions were accepted at face value, even when they defined reasoning. Places could be haunted. A family of murderers or freaks could be inhabiting the old house down the road and our everyday landmarks could have ominous and bizarre origin stories. This was the age of the urban legend, or in this instance, the age of the suburban legend. It was during this era 
that two ordinary residents began cataloging their favorite tales of local lore. This would lead to an entire generation of both teenagers and adults to grab their friends, load up the car, and head out for an adventure. A strange and fantastical destination was only a 45-minute drive away. In New Jersey, almost everything was a 45-minute drive away. This was weird New Jersey, and the adventure began in 1989. During the same time period, Another New Jersey institution was reaping the benefits of word-of-mouth marketing. Vernon, New Jersey, far away from the tri-state area's urban sprawl, was asserting itself as a premier summer destination for thrill-seekers and outdoor adventure enthusiasts. Water parks were a dime a dozen, and New Jersey also offered 130 miles of beaches. Those seeking to soak up the sun and take on the waves had plenty of options. Any of these water parks beaches, and pools offered a welcome reprieve from the hot summer heat. Most of them offered excitement as well, but Vernon, New Jersey offered something more. Danger. Fear. Action. This was Action Park. It opened on the 4th of July in 1978, and by 1983, its legend would spread like wildfire, engulfing an entire generation into its vortex. Everyone had a story about Action Park. But what was true, and what was just a misguided memory clouded by youthful nostalgia? It might not matter. For someone whose career is devoted to the weird and obscure, Mark Scorman's life appears to be the epitome of normal. He is a lifelong Essex County resident, growing up in a New Jersey suburb about 45 minutes outside of New York City. He made his living as a graphic designer, writer, and an inside source for the local New Jersey music scene. He was always interested in local history, but not the stories found in history books or museums. He didn't particularly care where George Washington marched his army or where Grover Cleveland lived. He was more interested in the local legends about the places right in his own backyard. He loved the eccentric stories he heard about his local neighborhood. Quote, I collected oddball stories about New Jersey, places I remember my brother telling me about, like Albino Village. End quote. Side note, we'll get to the albino village in a little while. Rumors and tales spun by older siblings were a treasure trove of local folklore. Schwarman realized that no one was writing down these stories, so he took advantage of this gap in the market. He typed up a few of his favorites, printed them, and handed them out to close friends. One friend recalls these early days, quote, If there were five people that wanted them, he'd go down to the copy shop and run off five copies. End quote. The trips to the copy shop were no longer feasible after one of his stories appeared in a local paper. This story attracted many more readers, and he met the growing demand by compiling several of these articles together and calling it an issue. Weird New Jersey Magazine was born. To assist with the growing demand, a second mark behind the madness, Mark Moran, soon joined Scorman. Another lifelong New Jersey resident, Moran was a freelance graphic artist with a shared love of New Jersey backwoods and lore. He started contributing photographs, drawings, and his own collection of stories. The two Marks became fast friends and a perfect team. They started churning out issues, and the quality improved with each publication. They decided on a semi-annual release, and they offered local bookstores issues to sell on consignment. Now what exactly filled these pages? 
And what makes New Jersey so weird? Wasn't the state just a collection of strip malls, highways, and suburbs that house New York City workers? We'll get back to this, but we have another origin story to revisit. Eugene Mulvihill grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, about 30 minutes outside of New York City. He was an entrepreneur, a developer, and a venture capitalist. When it came to generating money, he wore many hats. Whether it was real estate, early cell phones, robotics, or MRI technology, Gene had a knack for spotting a good investment. He also had a track record for picking stocks. Like many North Jersey residents, Gene spent his childhood summers at an overnight camp in Sussex County. Most think of New Jersey as an endless stretch of industrial buildings and sprawling suburbs. But if you drive northwest and keep going, you'll eventually end up in the lush, mountainous woods of Sussex County. This is the gateway to the Poconos, an ideal area for outdoor recreation. In the mid-1970s, a resort called the Vernon Valley Ski Resort went bankrupt. Mulvihill bought it. He set out to revitalize the ski resort, to bring back the glory days of the 1940s and 50s, when the Poconos were the premier honeymoon and family destination in the country. This resort was also located next to Hugh Hefner's Playboy Club. To maximize his income, Eugene searched for ways to utilize the area during the summer off-season. The standard spa and summer resort ideas just wouldn't do. Quote, his ski resort company was called Great American Recreation, and damn it, Gene Mulvihill was going to recreate it in what he considered the American way. End quote. What did Gene consider the American way? Well, not the standard amusement rides of the time. He wasn't interested in strapping people in and twirling them around. His son recalled, quote, He wanted to take the idea of skiing, which is exhilarating because you control the action, and transfer it to an amusement park. There's inherent risk in that, but that's what makes it fun. End quote. This would be a park built according to his own discretion. As one journalist put it, quote, Gene was a mad scientist with an oversized toy set. End quote. On April Fool's Day, a nod to his mischievous streak, Mulvihill unveiled the name for his pet project, Action Park, and the action never stopped at Action Park. Join us now as we explore some of the roads less traveled that can only be found right here in weird New Jersey. An author and expert on roadside attractions across the country attempted to explain the quirkiness the two marks were trying to capture. Quote, New Jersey has a surprising number of offbeat sites for its size relative to other states. A profusion of odd monuments, museums, and classic roadside attractions. End quote. One reason for the preponderance of sites and stories is the fact that New Jersey is one of the most densely populated regions of the United States. That's a lot of history and a lot of stories. Stories that grow in their grandeur and majesty, passed from mouth to mouth and from generation to generation. When it comes to local lore, everyone has their own story to tell. Stories the Marks were more than willing to mine. New Jersey also offered a vibrant, diverse, and offbeat population craving such stories. Now what are these stories that make New Jersey so weird? One example commonly whispered among the North Jersey residents in their youth, 
was the infamous Albino Village. Clifton, a blue-collar town in Passaic County, was once known as Frogtown due to its proximity to the Passaic River. Since the turn of the century, rumors of a colony of monochrome people residing in Frogtown circulated. Weird New Jersey paints a vivid picture of this renowned legend within the New Jersey lexicon. Quote, During the 1950s and early 60s, when B-movies exploited all kinds of fears, many teenagers would pay a late-night visit to Albino Village, hoping to scare their dates. Such trips went something like this. You would drive your car down the isolated back road leading to the old stone railroad bridge that marked the entrance to the village. At this point, your date would probably already be inching closer to you, and perhaps even clutching you for comfort, if you were lucky. Then the real fun would begin. The driver of the car would kill the headlights and drive ever so slowly through the narrow, darkened tunnel, inching closer to the fabled land of the albinos. Once inside the tunnel, there was no turning back. As you emerged from the portal, you would drive as quietly as possible, gawking at the cottages. The road was a dead end, and the only way out was back through the tunnel from whence you came. Most drivers would turn around, turn their lights on, honk the horn, and hang out the car's window, beating the doors and screaming, ALBINOS! to coax some of the pale people from their shadowy lairs." End quote. At this point, most drivers didn't stick around to see if their taunting was answered. They tore off back through the tunnel to safety. It was probably better that way. The scariest part of a horror movie is just before the monster is revealed. Weird New Jersey articles always featured accounts submitted by their readers, which were as absorbing as the articles themselves. Of course, no one ever really saw the raging albinos come for them, but everyone had a cousin or a friend who swore to it. Even today, any social media post referencing the albino village elicits first and second-hand accounts. From a reader named Dennis, quote, I went out to the Albino Village with six other cars of teens one night. The people blocked the exit after we turned around. When we got out of the car to see why, they pulled a rifle and held us until the police came and checked us all out. Once the police arrived, of course the rifle disappeared. It was a scary night to say the least. End quote. Another reader submission, quote, We were chased away by residents. They threw rocks at us. It was dark and scared the hell out of us. End quote. A Reddit commenter recalled, quote, I went there with my rowdy friends in the early 70s. The homeowners were sick and tired of it, so they sicked their dogs on us. We'd shoot Roman candles at them. Boy, were we stupid. End quote. Any amateur sleuth could deduct that the confrontations were merely residents ticked off at the constant harassment, not a colony of albinos. The real monsters in this story were the rambunctious teenagers pestering the residents. But nonetheless, the legend remains and chilling encounters gave the adolescents a memorable experience. Fill your summer with action. Twist, turn, and burn action. And when it's hot, we've got the coolest action around, where you can swing, slide, and dive into crisp mountain water. This summer, catch the action at Action Park. There's nothing in the world like it. The first summer ride, which remained a centerpiece of the park throughout its reign, was the Alpine Slide. Quote, a cement raceway that allowed guests to careen down the mountain in cement troughs 
while riding a tiny cart that let them control the speed. End quote. So if careening down a mountain through a cement track wasn't dangerous enough, passengers were given control of the brake. Brake too hard and you would fail to maintain your balance, possibly careening off your sled or jumping the sled completely off the track. This all happened with frequency. Many riders were branded with the Action Park Tattoo, that is, a giant burn on their bodies from their skin skidding along the track. A first aid worker interviewed for the park's oral history noted, quote, The primary ingredients in those tracks were asbestos, by the way, end quote. The first aid workers offered further tales from the infirmary. They'd treat the burns with a disinfectant spray, primarily consisting of rubbing alcohol. Quote, Imagine spraying rubbing alcohol on a rug burn. We'd spray these dudes down and take bets on who would do the craziest dance. They would run out of first aid like we had just set them on fire, end quote. As bad as the burns were, collisions were worse. If people were hurt badly enough, the first aid squad would arrive with a sling. Victims were loaded in and taken down the mountain, ironically on a medical fitted slide. It was the only way to get them down. From the Alpine slide, Action Park expanded to water rides. After the first year, two water slides and a go-kart track were added. The next year, more water slides and a deep water swimming pool. Business began to boom after television and radio commercials aired. The ads were gloriously cheesy and distinctly recognizable in a used car salesman way. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. We come at Action Family with over 50 exciting rides, shows, and attractions. It's bigger and better than ever. Something for everyone looking for fun. Get ready for the action. At the world's largest participation park where you and the rides become one. This week, come and share the experience together. You're just minutes away. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. Eventually, Action Park would consist of 75 rides, 35 motorized, and 40 water slides. At its zenith, it had three major centers. The Alpine Center, Motor World, and Water World and Gene Mulvihill was more than willing to push the limits for the sake of thrills. If someone had a crazy idea for a ride, he would hire them to build it. A former employee lamented, quote, things were done off the cuff. Ride designs were just thrown together. They were building the plane while they were flying it, end quote. Gene Mulvihill wanted to bring his do-it-yourself version of America to the park. He didn't much care for supervision or regulations. Quote, Action Park was like Lord of the Flies come to life, end quote. All these isolated little uh, sites and legends are all uh, scattered, and uh, there's really no other uh, folder to put these things into other than a, uh, a project called uh, Weird New Jersey. Another long-standing New Jersey legend is very similar to Albino Village, and this one actually has a shred of historical credibility. Nonetheless, it consists of the same exploitation of people with medical conditions. Many people have heard the legend of Midgetville. Tales have floated around about communities of little people that collectively retired from circuses, freak shows, or vaudeville acts of yesterday. Many have stories of their quest to find these elusive communities. One reader claimed that Edgewater, New Jersey had an area with stop signs nailed lower than normal. His dad told him that after Pearl Harbor, 
circus workers and vaudeville stars short of stature found their niche in the Hudson County war effort as rivet men crawling inside the wings of planes. Common accounts from other readers often include angry residents hurling projectiles at them. In some accounts, their presence was met with gunfire. Weird New Jersey has been cautious never to give the addresses of such places in respect to the residents. Most alleged discoveries of this village turn out to be smaller vacation cottages built in the early 1900s. Thus, the claims are almost always found to be false. However, the magazine did trace down one promising lead. In the early 1900s, Alfred Ringling purchased almost 1,000 acres of land in Jefferson Township, New Jersey. Alfred Ringling was one of five brothers in a highly successful business partnership. This partnership was America's most well-known and opulent traveling show, the Ringley Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. On his estate, Ringling constructed a massive 24-room mansion that was to serve as his winter home. Quote, Lions and tigers were kept in a stone building below the water tower, and the elephants were kept in a glass-roofed barn. A large tent was set up for the local shows. The townspeople enjoyed watching the animals marching to and from the railroad station and barns. End quote. But Ringling has long since passed away, and ownership of the manor was traded among several entities. Over the years, the manor withered into decay. Next to the manor, a narrow dirt road led to a nearby pine forest. Hidden within was a cluster of small houses, about the size of a tool shed, but fully decorated like actual homes. Full-size adults could barely stand up straight within them. Anticlimactically, the two marks were not chased off by angry residents. The homes were all vacant. The magazine ponders, quote, Is it merely a coincidence that a cluster of extremely small cottages is located so close to the estate where a circus that employed many little people performers once wintered? Or is it possible that Alfred Ringling had these homes custom-built to make his tinier attractions more comfortable, end quote. Did the Marks finally complete this elusive crusade and put the mystery to rest? Not even close. Readers continued to update the magazine with their never-ending search for the land of the little people. In the past, Action Park gave you spectacular rides and fabulous entertainment. But hold on to your bathing suit because there's more, lots more. Now, Action Park brings to the world the brand new, awesome Roaring Springs. Spread out over six acres, Roaring Springs has got it all. It's got cliff diving, air slides, caves, rapids, waterfalls. It's even got an underwater river. But most of all, it's got action. All of Action Park's rides shared Mulvihill's concept of you control the action. The riders were held accountable for their behavior. What followed was a fantastic and astounding social experiment. Before we get to the overall management and operation of the park, as well as the clientele, we'll highlight a few of the notable rides. Waterworld was the best of the best when it came to danger. The Tarzan swings loomed 20 feet over a pool fed from natural spring water. The water was freezing cold. Quote, if you let go too early, you could fall into cushions, but you could also fall into the rocks and then roll into the water. If you held on too long, you could scrape yourself in the concrete on the far side. And if you didn't let go at all, freaked by the drop, 
you might swing all the way back and tumble into the woods where you started, end quote. To add to the pressure of aiming your descent, large lines of people waiting their turn acted as spectators. Sometimes the riders were wise guys, and on their dismount would pull down their suit and flash the crowd, quote, but whether suited or bare-assed, landing in the icy water of the pond was no joke, end quote. Riders still recall the Tarzan swings as the coldest water they'd ever swam in. Rumors circulated that lifeguards would often have to assist people in shock from hitting the sudden freeze of the water. The aquascoot involved a plastic sled that tore down a 60-foot track slide at such speeds that allowed riders to skip across the pool upon exit. Of course, this was the best case scenario. Quote, if positioned incorrectly, the sled could sink as soon as it hit the water, flinging the rider off headfirst at a good speed, end quote. The rider might not even get to this point, falling off before hitting the water, banging their head into the metal rollers. Quote, a lot of bells were rung, said a former park employee. The Colorado River ride was described by this same employee as, quote unquote, pure mayhem. It was a two-person raft ride down a river trough crafted to look like a natural riverbed. The effort to appear natural was a little too on the nose. Riders could fall out at various junctions and hit their head on the rock walls, scrape themselves on jagged rocks, or crash into each other, purposefully or not. The most dangerous attraction, however, was the wave pool, or what was commonly referred to by staff as the grave pool. This large pool had a mechanical wave machine that could produce a 40-inch tide. The pool began shallow, but slanted until the depth rose to about 12 feet. The pool was commonly overcrowded, and the maximum capacity was ignored. Quote, it was just a sea of heads bobbing up and down, end quote. Furthermore, the water wasn't clear enough to see the bottom, as park officials continued adding chlorine. Throw in the crowds of campers and kids from New York City, many unable to swim, you had a recipe for disaster. There were eight to 10 lifeguards on duty at a time. Former lifeguards claimed to pull out an average of 30 people out of the water every day and over a hundred on a busy weekend. Said one guard, quote, I can't tell you the number of people who would jump into the water, start to drown and get pulled out. And then we'd ask if they knew how to swim. They'd go, nah, I don't. I figured the lifeguard would pull me out. That's just insane, end quote. It became policy that anyone pulled from the pool would have to wear a wristband for the rest of the day. The band flashed the letters CFS. This was abbreviation for Can't Effing Swim. Lately, people have been telling some weird and spooky tales about New Jersey, and it's turned into an issue of grave importance. So we sent Maury Alter, our very own Ghostbuster, to investigate. Perhaps the weird New Jersey site that garnered the largest concentration of legends and tales was Clinton Road in West Milford. It was given the moniker, the scariest and strangest road in the US. Mark Moran summed up his attitude toward Clinton Road, quote, it's like a dark highway into people's innermost fears, end quote. This 10 mile stretch of asphalt winds north through trees, contains a few bridges and passes a reservoir. Upon first glance, it's a scenic, if unassuming, drive. That is, if you happen to avoid the plethora of supernatural and straight-up creepy disturbances many swear to. But it is isolated, and it is desolate, and it is lonely. These factors likely breed paranoia.
On a bridge past Dead Man's Curve resides the ghost of a young boy. If you throw change into the river, he is said to sometimes throw the coins back at you. Or sometimes he places the coins in the road to be found the next morning. He might even push you into the water to save you from the oncoming car that ended his life. But this isn't the only premonition or creepy landmark that haunts Clinton Road. Remains of a castle, as well as an iron smelter, linger in the nearby woods. These ruins are now a temple to the occult, where local druids practice their rituals, or where the KKK holds their secret meetings. Some visitors have produced pictures of satanic symbols spray-painted on the stone. Riders have spotted all types of living, breathing evil lurking in the woods off Clinton Road. Jackson Whites are said to inhabit the area. These are a deranged race of social outcasts that took refuge in the Ramapo Mountains back in colonial times. Legend has it that the Jackson Whites are a hybrid of renegade Indians, escaped slaves, Hessian mercenary deserters, and West Indian prostitutes. Venture into the woods at your own peril, as this bizarre race has a history of cannibalism. There are plenty of non-human creatures gazing out from the shadows as well. The grayish white wolf with red eyes, the floating dogs of hell. Even a monkey has been seen wandering the woods. Many of these creatures are thought to be survivors of jungle habitat, a local theme park with a drive-through safari. It closed its doors in 1976. If hybrid cannibals and mythical creatures aren't weird enough, the sky above Clinton Hill is a hotbed of UFO activity. Many witnesses describe an illuminated sky with hundreds of blue, red, and white lights. Finally, we can't forget the ghost in the Camaro. This entity prowls the highway late at night. Eerie headlights are known to chase drivers across Clinton Hill, only to disappear when turning off to the normal intersection. Clinton Hill is bursting at the seams with folklore, so much so that the Marks dedicated an entire issue to it. It's gained so much fame, or infamy, that a horror movie of the same title was released in 2019. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. When it's hot out, this is a great place to spend the day with your family. So lots of big things for little kids to do. I love Action Park because it's so beautiful. Despite the inherent danger of the wave pool and the adrenaline rush and thrill of the other rides, nothing personified the absurdity of Action Park like the Cannonball Loop. Like the statue of Christ the Redeemer overlooking Rio de Janeiro, the Cannonball Loop stood over the park in all of its absurd glory. Fittingly, the ride was visible to guests upon arrival at the main entrance. Even after seeing it, it was hard to believe. It didn't quite make sense. Quote, it seemed to obey the laws of cartoon physics, end quote. Legend has it that the Cannibal Loop was pitched to Mulvihill by drawing a loop on a napkin. Gene immediately gave it his blessing to construct. The ride was, quote, a steep enclosed slide feeding a 360 degree turn at the bottom, end quote. Riders would, quote, climb into the mouth of the ride some 50 feet off the ground get hosed down to reduce friction, and then speed through the tube like a chambered bullet, clearing the loop and emerging at the other end in a shallow pool." End quote. Now the legends of people actually riding the Cannibal Loop were ripe for the pages of Weird New Jersey Magazine, and they were in issue 25. 
From interviews, it appears the slide was only open to the public on and off for about a month, but the testing process was filled with unbelievable tales. Rumor has it that when Mulvihill wanted his staff to test it out, they refused. His son was willing to try it, but only while wearing full hockey pads. Another rumor was that a test dummy was sent down the slide, and it came out headless. Mulvihill's son admits that this probably happened. Quote, The problem was, if the momentum didn't keep you on the top of the wall, you'd fall three or four feet to the other side on your face, breaking your nose or your teeth. End quote. There's another story about some of the employees that were bribed to test it out. Quote, The first one smacked his face and his teeth got knocked out. The second person came out all cut up. When they went in, the first guy's teeth had gotten stuck inside and cut the second guy. End quote. Those that didn't make it over the loop became stuck at the bottom, and someone had to crawl in to rescue them. So Mulvihill put a hatch at the bottom. Over the years, they tinkered with the ride, but the same problem kept happening, and it quickly closed again. Despite its failure, the structure still loomed over everyone entering the park, serving as an indication of the altered reality they were about to enter. It's subject matter that you're not going to find it in the library or uh, in any newspapers or anything. It's, it's all word of mouth stuff. So you go to your local bar, you go to your diner. Uh, all those people have a story they want to tell. Uh, and just nobody ever listens to them except us. <laughs> That's the problem. We're foolish enough to actually listen to them. Whether it's local legends involving the Jersey Devil, or in this case, verifying local reports about a rural road in Mercer County where cars mysteriously roll uphill. Like Clinton Road, all of New Jersey is bursting at the seams with legends. The Devil's Tree in Bernard's, which curses anyone who dares to chop it down, an abandoned psychiatric hospital. Gravity Roads, where you put your car in neutral and roll up a hill. There's the Monkey Man of Hoboken that caused hysteria among school kids. Anything eerie or odd enough to attract Mark's attention would make it into the pages of the semi-annual magazine. Residents couldn't get enough of it. Circulation steadily gained steam since the beginning, from 500 copies of one issue to 1,000 copies of the next. Eventually, it grew by 5,000 copies each issue. By 2003, the Marks were publishing 150,000 copies a year. That led to their book, a culmination of their favorite tales into a single volume, Weird New Jersey, your travel guide to New Jersey's local legends and best kept secrets. This was the holy bible of the strange, and upon release, it reached the New York Times bestseller list. Weird New Jersey has since grown into a full-fledged franchise. Original issues are currently collector's items on eBay. They have also added videos, paraphernalia, and even sponsored events. The brand once hosted a Halloween party. One fan described the dedication of the readers, quote, we thought we had great costumes, my friend was a dead ringer for Carrie, but we didn't even come close to the people that dressed up as the New Jersey icons. From the Jersey Devil to Clinton Road, the magazine uncovered and created, end quote. One fan remembered her first thought upon passing her driver's test in high school. Which weird New Jersey location should I go to first? The Marks remain in awe of the diversity of their fan base. Of course, they attract a healthy volume of the Warped Tour crowd, teenage goths and punks, but often right next to them, in line for an autograph or a speaking engagement, will be an elderly woman 90 years old. 
The New York Times tried to make sense of it all. Quote, Perhaps the magazine's popularity underscores a desire for New Jersey to define itself by its very eccentricity. End quote. The Mark's Empire of the Weird has now expanded to other states. They landed a television show on the History Channel, Weird US, which ran for several seasons. Despite their widespread success, the Marks maintain a simple existence, continuing to live and work out of their home state. The magazine remains a primarily two-person operation. Race like a pro! It's great! These are the most amazing rides in the world. I love it here. Mulvihill's social experiment of giving the visitor the accountability to keep safe was tested even further by filling the park with beer stands and executing a very lax practice when it came to underage drinking. The park had an open container policy, which was ironic to say the least, given that many of the rides required some focus and coordination. The rowdiness of the visitors added to the debauchery. Guests likened the parking lot to a tailgate at a Jets game. A few employees recalled some of their war stories. Quote, We once had a group of bodybuilders come in and start throwing lifeguards into the pool. We had to call the police. Guys were just aggressive. They were feeling their oats. End quote. Another recalls further drunken fisticuffs, coincidentally also featuring bodybuilders. Quote, The park did these gladiator games, basically a takeoff of American gladiators and one of the gladiators on payroll beat the crap out of one of the patrons using those bopping sticks. So the guy comes back with a dozen friends to fight six of the gladiators. It was a melee, a riot, 40, 50, 60 people. Everyone responded, food service, lifeguards. It was ridiculous. The amount of wounded we took in from that. People were nuts, end quote. The visitors weren't the only ones with the drinking issues. There were a plethora of reports of the staff working under the influence. In fact, the young age of the staff was a constant factor in the overall lawlessness. As a summer job, teenagers were the majority of the workforce. After-hour shenanigans were legendary. Staffers discovered ways to override the speed regulator of the go-karts and cruise through the park at high speeds. Over the years, the injuries mounted so much so that the park had their own ambulance and donated another one to the local hospital. The lawsuits mounted as well, as did the deaths. Six in total. I know that's not to be taken lightly. Six people, many of them under 20 years old. Despite the volume of injuries and multiple deaths, it was not the lawsuits that brought down the park. Mulvihill, a shrewd businessman, fought each and every one tooth and nail. The park's sentiment was that most of the injuries were caused by, quote, people doing stupid things they shouldn't have done, end quote. The action of Movahill's Funland continued until 1997, when the park became a victim of its owner's fading fortune. One of his real estate deals went sour and put the company that owned Action Park into bankruptcy. But for most of the 80s, the park left a permanent impression on an entire generation. In an online petition to reopen the park, one former visitor wrote, quote, Action Park was a rite of passage for many boys and girls from the tri-state who walked through the blood-stained gates of Action Park. Boys became men, girls became women. Being a true New Jerseyan, I knew Action Park was a test of one's grit. 
Many of us who went to Jersey's most dangerous amusement park still wear the scars we received there as medals of honor and badges of courage." End quote. This is a common sentiment of the Gen X crowd that survived Action Park. Even today, social media posts about Action Park draw a high volume of comments about personal experience, most of them positive. Nostalgia is a tricky and complicated thing. I'll read one of my favorite comments. Quote, I rode the loop, and yes, I did get a concussion. Although back then, no one really thought that much about concussions or the ill effects of them. It was the first ride I went on since it was near the entrance. I spent the rest of the day in a haze, had a great time. I went to Action Park many times over the next few years. The loop was closed after that first time. And every time I went, someone in my group was injured. Greatest park ever, end quote. The success and or failure of the social experiment of Action Park is as complex as it is relative. Mulvihill's son swears that his father never had any ill intent. It was never about the bottom line for him. Quote, it was about the fun, about creating something that no one else had ever seen, end quote. But despite the outpouring of nostalgia, we can't downplay the tragedy of deaths that occurred there. There is an interesting debate to be had about the positive attributes of risk and the importance of personal responsibility. Sports Illustrated quibbled with this issue. Quote, the lawless ethos must be weighed against the joy it brought hundreds of thousands of kids who had the time of their lives, who got banged and bruised but also learned to test their limits and discover some version of rip-skinned character at a time before parental helicoptering became the norm." End quote. So why was New Jersey ripe for the rise of a quirky compilation of oddball folklore? And why are New Jersey residents so fond of a highly dangerous and chaotic water park? Well, if you need a concrete answer to either of these questions, you're definitely not from New Jersey. Where you and the rides become one. You're just minutes away. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. Well, folks, that's our show. Hope that you enjoyed the tour. Before you disembark, don't forget to visit our souvenir shop. In terms of sources for this episode, the weird New Jersey information was taken from their own website, as well as previous issues and some interviews the founders did with the Star-Ledger and New York Times. For Action Park material, most of the stories were gathered in an oral history by Jake Rawson. There is also a good article on Action Park in Sports Illustrated by Jack McCallum. After I recorded this episode, the same author of the oral history, Jake Rawson, teamed with the owner's son, Andy Mulvihill, and released a book about Action Park called Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park. Special thanks to Van Voorst Films for producing this podcast. Until next time.